Modern smartphones are sleek and thin, but they're also fragile and expensive. If you're really careful, you may use it until you're ready to upgrade without shattering the glass. But if you look around, you'll see most phones wrapped in a case for protection. Our personal data is even more valuable than the device it's stored on, and it deserves just as much protection. The work that I do requires me to travel a lot, which means I'm frequently to connect, connected to unfamiliar networks. Nefarious hackers can make up to $1,000 selling the data of each of their victims on the dark web, and there are cheap hardware and software tools readily available that let even a smart middle schooler snatch your data without you even noticing. A virtual private network, or VPN, like ExpressVPN, creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your devices and the servers that you're transmitting data to and from. When you're, when you're sitting at the airport gate area, or airline lounge, or even your hotel room, those Wi-Fi networks aren't secure. Your bits are flying through the air, and whether you're checking your bank account balance, sending data to a client, or just checking your email, bad actors can snatch up your usernames, passwords, and everything else you send and receive if it's not encrypted. The layers of security used by ExpressVPN would take over a billion years to expose by bad guys with some of the most powerful supercomputers. ExpressVPN trusted server technology also runs each session in memory in a unique virtual space that is wiped clean as you end your session with none of your data ever written to a hard drive, so there's no residue for anyone to recover about what you were doing after the fact. ExpressVPN runs on almost all devices, including Windows, Mac, iOS, Linux, Android, streaming devices like Chromecast, Roku, Fire Stick, and Apple TV, and there's also a Chrome browser extension. It's super simple to use. Once you install ExpressVPN, it's one click to establish a secure encrypted tunnel with servers in 105 countries around the world. I've personally been paying for and using ExpressVPN for years on all of my personal devices. When I, started, when I first started using VPNs for work more than 20 years ago, they were often slow and unstable and had to be restarted frequently. But with ExpressVPN, data speeds are virtually unchanged from running fully exposed, so you can just turn the VPN on and leave it on. I often get materials from clients and companies that are, that are under embargo or NDA, and if it leaks out, I can get into some trouble. But even if I just wanted to reach back to my personal server to grab some files, check my email, or watch something that's only available on one of my streaming services at home while I'm out of the country, ExpressVPN lets me do it all securely. Your data is valuable. Don't let bad actors steal it and potentially misuse it. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash wheelbearings. And you can get an extra three months free when you sign up. Expressvpn.com slash wheelbearings. And thanks to ExpressVPN for supporting wheelbearings. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Wheel Bearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I'm Sam Abu Al Samad. 
So as we head into episode 20, we have a few things coming up. We've got the New York show, uh, before which you actually spoke with a couple of folks from GM about the Regal, which is we're, we're going to see there, so we can drop those interviews into the show as well. Um, I'm not going to be in New York. I'm uh, staying home to, to do my taxes. <laughs> but uh, in the meantime, um, let's start with the, the garage. And what are you driving? Uh, after they took away the uh, BMW 530 on a flatbed on Monday morning, they dropped off uh, a 330i for me. And I drove that for the last few days. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, the, the difference. You know, the, the 330i did not have all of the options that were on the 530. So it didn't have any of the driver assist stuff. Um, it had the same powertrain, the same two liter turbo, uh, eight speed automatic combination, rear wheel drive. Uh, and you know, it feels just as good, just as brisk in the, in the smaller, lighter three series. Um, but it, you know, it didn't have all the, uh, lane keeping assist and adaptive cruise control and, and all the other fancy stuff, uh, just the basic iDrive. And one, one thing that I found very interesting about iDrive, um, I hadn't, I hadn't really tried uh, using voice recognition very much um, with the, the stock iDrive um, in the five series, but I did in this three series a couple of times and it was interesting. The uh, voice recognition has actually gotten a lot better. It's now able to um, do recognition um, on uh, you know, much closer to natural language. I wouldn't call right, it natural see. language yet, but you know, you can, you can, it's more like uh, doing, uh, you know, doing navigation commands uh, with Siri or, or uh, Android where, you know, uh, for example, when I was going down to the SA World Congress this week, I could just say drive to Kobo Center in Detroit and it figured out where that was. Right, and instead I, I of like entering state and zip code yeah, and street and address and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, which makes it a lot less of a hassle to, to use. So um, kudos to BMW on a vast improvement in that. Uh, you know, the, the iDrive interface, other than that, you know, was pretty much uh, pretty close to what's in the uh, 5 Series. You know, it's kind of like a half step back from what's in the 5 Series because it's been in, out in the 3 Series for a couple of years. Uh, the 5 has gotten some additional updates. But other other than that, it, you know, it worked well and I enjoyed driving this car. So just the 3 Series, you, you luckily had it back to back with the 5 Series so you can kind of feel the contrast because part of the opinion is that the three has grown to really be almost what the five was. Uh, it's certainly a much larger car than it happened. Although it's still, it's still, you know, not, not that big, but it's, it's the biggest three ever. Uh, and driving them back to back, does it still feel like a three series, I guess, especially when it's not carrying all that uh, driver assist stuff. It's, it's a little bit more of a pure car. Um, yeah. More, more so. I mean, you know, certainly, like almost every other car on the road, you know, it has gotten bigger with each successive generation. Uh, it's pretty rare to find anything uh, out there these days that hasn't gotten bigger uh, with each redesign. Uh, it's still, you know, it's still comparatively light by today's standards, uh, given all the, the features that it does have. Um, you know, the, the current generation three series has gotten some criticism uh, from enthusiasts because they switched from uh, hydraulic power assist for the steering to uh, an electric power assist. And it, the steering feel is not quite as good as it was before. 
and you know, I noticed that to some degree last year when I drove a 340i. Uh, you know, it's it's definitely not quite what it once was. Um, BMW's got some work to do. You know, a lot of manufacturing, you know, almost everyone's using electric power assist now. And some manufacturers have gotten better than others at tuning it to, to give you some better feel, uh, you know, it, to give it a more natural feel and, and better feedback. Uh, and, you know, BMW is not quite there yet with this one. You know, it's not it's not terrible, um, but, you know, it's certainly not the, the paragon that uh, three series have been for decades. Yeah, I'm sure that it's going to, you know, like when, when it rolled out in other cars, uh, it wasn't that great and it's gotten better. They'll figure it out. Everybody used to complain about power steering, uh, you know, the hydraulic setups. Yeah, uh, I mean, being, being pro- proper steering should not have any assist whatsoever. It should just be, you know, your arms and your steer- and the steering wheel. Yeah. But, I, of, but of course, you know, in those days, you know, steering wheels were usually, you know, you know, like 20 <laughs> right. inches across. I was going to say they're like bus yeah. steering wheels. Exactly. You get a lot uh, of leverage. So if you want a small little steering wheel, you got, you're going to need a little assist, you know, unless you've got something as light as a, a Lotus Elise or an Alpha 4C. I would drive the hell out of an Elise oh, every yeah. day. <sighs> okay. What about uh, you? <laughs> uh, I'm wrapping up a week. I really, I need to, I need to find something to tow, actually. Um, cause I've got the Chevrolet Silverado 2500 HD, uh, which I thought was a little bit weird to get at first, uh, but then I, I did a little research into why it might be out there again. Cause I thought these trucks like were new a year or two ago. Um, but what they've done is the diesel engine in the new HD GM pickups is basically all new and very comprehensively re-engineered. They, the, the block is the same, although they say it's been strengthened. And then pretty much everything else that's within that block <laughs> is, is new and uh, re-engineered. So it puts out... Uh, I believe it's about 9 million foot-pounds of torque now, isn't yes, it? Yes, it, it is. It is 910 pound-feet of torque at 1,600 RPM. Um <sighs> And it's a 445 horsepower, which is diesels generally have pretty tepid horsepower ratings, although these days everything is ridiculous. Uh, But so it's still 445 horsepower. So that's no joke. Um, It's it's impressive. You know, I. I immediately noticed that it's it's a much quieter engine Uh, and it lights off very quickly. And those are two of the things that they really were working hard on was noise abatement. And it's got a new glow plug system that uh, makes much faster cold starts. And even though we're, we're headed into spring here in New England, we've had a couple of, of, of chilly mornings. Uh, so I got to see, you know, how long does it normally take to glow? Because even with modern diesel, sometimes uh, when when the temp dips below freezing, you, you've got a few second wait. They're all pretty good now, but this was almost just pretty much just like a gas engine. You just turn the key, it cranks right up. Um, and I did wind up, uh, I drove to an event, uh, the other day and I took the truck. Um, and so it was, I, it was a couple hundred miles back, back and forth. So a couple hundred miles round trip, I'm getting like almost 18 miles to the gallon with it. And I know that's, that's highway I mean, that's, and that's, not towing, yeah, but, but still that's, you know, for a truck that weighs, you know, what about 7,000 pounds empty. Yeah, um, it's enormous. Or, it's, let's see. It's, 
6,700 to 8,000 pounds. And this is the four wheel yeah. drive. It doesn't have, it's not the dual, uh, dual rear axle. So it's our dual rear wheels. So I, I would say you're, you're right on probably 7,000, maybe 7,500. I don't, I don't is know it, how much. Is there a two wheel drive or four wheel drive? No, no, it's a four wheel. Uh, okay. So, and yeah, I'm, I'm looking, I'm just looking at the, uh, the specs right now. It's about 6,600 pounds empty. Okay. Yeah. And uh, it's not the, it's, it's a, it's the extended cab. It's it's got the small doors. You know, it's oh, the not double the cab. Full crew. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, well, actually, they they list sixty five seventy seven for both the double cab and the crew cab. So, okay, uh, yeah, they probably don't weigh that much different. Um, yeah, so it's it's that's just pretty good for a giant thing that's just you know shoving shoving it through the air. Uh, I I have to my speed wasn't all that high because we we've had kind of torrential rain and stuff too so my highway trip wasn't at the the greatest pace um but still that's really good fuel economy for a truck this large um and and 14,500 pounds towing capacity yeah and that's on (laughs) that's on a class three hitch right uh yeah yeah that's yeah yeah, it's a trailer hitch uh or actually no i think that's i think that may be with a fifth wheel with the fifth wheel yeah Yeah. that's, that's the fifth wheel spec that's still though like fourteen. That if I, I'm I'm not personally uh, no actually sorry that tow. that is conventional towing. It's fourteen. Oh, that five. is yeah. So what is it on a on a fifth wheel? It's got to be higher. Uh, it, uh, yeah, it can still, get up to fifteen seven with a fifth wheel on the twenty five hundred. And the thirty five hundred with the dual rear wheels could probably. I'm I'm assuming yeah, those, they brush twenty. Yeah, I think they go over twenty. That's crazy. Yeah, that's like. Don't you need a commercial license to drive a truck that uh, heavy? Amazingly, no, you don't. That's that's a lot of weight. <laughs> yes, it is. Um, and so I don't, you know, I don't know if you've ever have you ever actually towed something that, you know anywhere close to that heavy. On no, the road? that's what, that's I I would be um, I would be really a little bit nervous to tow something that heavy just because I I've, I've never done it. You know, most of my towing has been limited to stuff that's not not really all that challenging for any pickup. So back, back in 2010, I think uh, when they launched the previous generation GM HD pickups, uh, I went on the, the drive program for that down in uh, West Virginia. And I did get to tow, uh, I think it was about a 10,000 pound trailer, uh, conventional towing, the 10,000 pound trailer uh, with, I think it was a, uh, I think it was a 3,500. Um, and it's it's a very strange experience. It does take some getting used to having, you know, this big massive trailer behind you. Yeah, and it takes a bit. I'm sure it takes a bit to get it moving. Yeah, and then uh, then you have to constantly remind yourself that that it's there. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> you know? that's a lot of inertia. Yeah, those things yeah. do not stop quickly. And uh, they've really they've made. I mean, these are little big rigs. Um, you know, it's got integrated trailer brake controllers. It's got an exhaust brake as well. Um, the, the It's got an Allison transmission. Uh, so it, it's all, it's designed to do work. But the thing I like about the the GM pickups, I think I like th- them most of the, the current crop. I waffle a little on trucks um, just because I, I don't, I don't use them. Uh, when I get them as a, a, a press car, I, I don't really have a farm or anything to really put them to work and test their sort of relative merits. I look at the specs and go, you know, any one of these is going to just it's going to work hard for you. Um, but the GM trucks are they're quiet. 
and they're comfortable. Even if they're, this is not the most luxuriously equipped uh, twenty five hundred, it's it has cloth seats and um, you know it has a few few options. So it's it's nice, but it's not that nice. Uh, it still costs sixty three thousand dollars, but um, most of that is the nine thousand dollars of engine mm-hmm. and and the four wheel drive. Um, but yeah, it's it's a really pleasant truck to just you know spend hours in the saddle. Um, it, it doesn't feel you know the Ford the the F one fifty or the F series, I guess, because uh, it wouldn't be an F one fifty that competes. I don't know what it is about Ford trucks. They just they feel. I don't know, almost like relax fit, relax fit jeans or you know, like the, <laughs> the build quality doesn't seem quite as high as the GMs. And, and maybe that's my bias because I look around and there's so many Fords on the road and, you know, you see them, they they get used as plow trucks and they rust up here and stuff. And I'm, I'm sure if I really started counting, everybody would would be about the same. But um, yeah, the, the GM trucks, they feel really modern from behind the wheel. They're, they're really refined. And, and the 17s, the HDs, they have a, a new uh, hood scoop uh, to to cool off the engine bay a bit when it's working hard. That's it. It's a little bit chromy, a little little garish, but uh, it's a it's a hell of a truck. Yeah, <laughs> okay. I just I just pulled up the uh, the thirty five hundred dually specs, and um, you can get it up to the depending on the configuration up to twenty three thousand three hundred pounds with a fifth wheel. I mean, what, what would you, that's a, that's a, a cabin cruiser. That's a, or, or a house cabin cruiser. Yeah. I mean, 23,000 pounds. That's, that's a wooden sailboat with lead keel. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> like that's, that's just a lot. Um, a very large I, wooden sailboat. Yeah. Um, that's, and I, 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 Hey, I mean, there's a, a need for that kind of truck, I guess. Um, Apparently somebody does. Yeah. And, and I was, I'm, I'm very impressed by the engine. It's very refined, very smooth, uh, very, obviously very powerful. Um, you know, I think that, that uh, Chevy, yeah, and when you combine Chevrolet and GMC, I think they still outsell the F series. Or, um, uh, actually, I think, think they don't anymore they don't anymore okay yeah they is they it, did they did briefly um but now i think the f-series is back out in front again huh all right well the 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 big news here is the 6.6 liter duramax v8 and it is uh it's worth every kind of superlative it's i mean it's very comprehensively re-engineered you know they they from the from the the block up you know it's new cranks pistons cylinder heads everything is is redone and uh you know the results speak for themselves it's a it's a very smooth refined diesel um that there's really no penalty uh for it um other than you know you you have to maintain the exhaust fluid and stuff like that but that's every diesel so um yeah and actually since you since you brought up uh chevrolet and diesel i should mention that um this afternoon, uh, they did swap out the uh, the three series um, for a Chevy Cruze diesel. Um, oh, I like with, the Cruze diesel. Yeah, well, I, this is the first chance I've had to drive the new one. I drove the um, the previous generation one a couple of years ago, and I was actually it was, I was actually quite surprised with it. You know, I mean, it wasn't that one wasn't the most refined diesel in the world. That was an an older uh, generation diesel, and so it wasn't the quietest engine, but it it was really efficient. It you know it got 
I think about, I think I got about 44 or 45 miles per gallon combined with that thing. And uh, the new one, you know, is an all new engine that just launched in Europe a couple of years ago to 1.6 liter. Um, and it's, you know, I've only I've only had a chance to drive it for about 10 minutes uh, this afternoon, just getting home. Uh, but it, it it's really, really quiet. I was very surprised by how refined it is. And this time, unlike last time when they, it was only offered with uh, an automatic transmission, this time it's available with a manual. And that's actually what they sent me. Oh, that sounds like the perfect cruise. Like there, it, especially if it's a hatch. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So That's, I'll, uh, I'll, we'll, we'll talk about that one next week after I've had a chance to put a little more miles on it. Yeah. You know, before we move on, we will move on in a second, but I need to figure out how to, how to test this truck other than commuting in it too. So I, I would like to solicit some suggestions for the next time I get a truck. Just tie a chain I, around the foundation like, of your house. and No, I don't want to do that. <laughs> no. I, yeah. Do you Somebody have any stumps you need me. to pull out? Uh, not really, not really. Um, uh, you know any what? Trees you I, want to turn into stumps? I think I anybody who's giving away like landscaping uh, materials, like I could use some some nice tumbled stones to go around the, the garden edge and stuff. I'm in Massachusetts, not far from New Hampshire. Uh, y- you know, let me know what you're trying to get rid of. Some big rocks, I'll come Dan, and get them. Dan will come to your house and take it away for you. Yes, <laughs> I even have a trailer. Which Perfect. is such a joke for this truck. It's such a <laughs> tiny trailer. Uh, so anyway, about let's 500 move on. pounds on the trailer. Yeah. Uh, well, the trailer, my brother-in-law built it from an old uh, camper. So oh, it tows, okay. it tows real nice. Um, it's just a flatbed with a tailgate. But uh, anyway, let's move on. Um, you're headed to New York shortly. But and and at that show, the, the we we teed it up already. The the Buick Regal will be there. The the new Regal wagon. Um, was it the Regal X? Is the all wheel drive version as the, well? The that, tour. There's the Tour X and the Sportback. Okay, and the Sportback is the hatch, right? The Sportback is the five door hatchback. Um, and you know it's it's interesting. And uh, we've got an interview that we'll run in a bit. Um. That I did with uh, Bob Boniface, who's the uh, global direct global director of exterior design at GM uh, or for, for Buick. And uh, I actually first met Bob like 10 years ago when um, uh, he was uh, he led the team that designed the original Volt concept and then went on to to do the production Gen 1 Volt. Uh, and then he's been doing Cadillac for the last several years and now he's doing Buick. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, you know, there was, there was a lot of discussion about, you know, there's been some rumors that uh, for the, this time around for the Regal that they would do only the hatchback and the uh, the wagon instead of the four door sedan like they did on a previous generation. And, it, you know, when you look at it, it, you know, it's it doesn't obviously look like a hatchback because the you know the trend that we've seen with sedans over the last decade is you know you more and more you know you've got these fastback you know so-called coupe-like profiles you know fat, you know very very sleek roof lines you know that bend, blend right into the trunk lid right. and on most of these you know there there isn't you no longer really have a three box shape on on sedans anymore on most sedans and uh, you know given that you know, and the fact that, you know, Americans traditionally have not been, you know, that fond of hatchbacks, especially in premium cars. It, you know, it's, it's interesting that, you know, they, they went this direction because it, it doesn't really look different, you know, much different from most modern sedans. 
Except yeah, now true. you have this great big opening in the back to put stuff in when you, you know, find something interesting at a at an estate sale or, you know, want to go out to the go out to the lake and throw a bunch of gear in the back. So it's uh, yeah. it's quite, quite useful. Well, and that's the biggest complaint that I've had about the cars with the sweeping roof lines is you wind up with this dinky little trunk lid that yeah. you can't get anything into the trunk. So at least as a hatch. You know, it it does like it doesn't look all that different from other cars. And Mazda did the same thing with the six for a while as well. Um, yeah, but they they ended up dropping it. I wouldn't be surprised if the next generation they they maybe go back in that direction. You know, and Audi's done it. You know, with the a both the A five and the A seven, uh, they offer that. And BMW's got you know uh, their their uh, Gran Turismo's, the three series Gran Turismo and the and the five series. Uh, although that latter one's you know somewhat less sleek looking yeah well i mean the three series gt is no peach either but it's it's a little better yeah but those, I mean, you, those you are know, weird cars they're in yeah. a weird place you know even you know even the porsche panamera you know is a hatchback right. five-door hatchback so well it makes sense too because then like if you were to put a trunk in this car it's going to be like 12 <laughs> to 14 cubic feet but you're not going to be able to get anything in there but at least with a hatch you can open it up and you could probably get a more useful cargo area and, and actually a little bit more. Yeah. And, and, and in fact, um, you know, in this in the Regal Sportback with the rear seats up, you can get thirty one and a half cubic feet of stuff in the back there. That's ridiculous. And when you fold the seats down, it grows to almost sixty one cubic feet. That's a lot of space. That's a very it functional is. car. Yeah, it, it, it's a good looking car. So um, do we want to drop that interview in now or because you also yeah. uh, spoke with um, uh, the uh, with Martin Hayes, the uh director of engineering on the yeah let's well, let's so. let's let's do uh let's let's listen to bob uh right now and then come back and we'll talk about the tour x for a minute and then we'll listen to martin hayes okay all right bob boniface global director of buick design buick right? exterior design buick yeah. exterior design. just the outsides okay so um we've got the the new regal that uh you guys are showing off today mm-hmm. and yeah, it's obviously um, you know shares most of its exterior shape with um, with the Opel Insignia that just recently launched, mm-hmm. and you've, you've adapted you know some Buick design cues to mm-hmm. that, especially in the in the fascia, front fascia. Um, it, it's interesting that you know you've kind of taken a little different approach this time than the previous generation Regal. Um, you know, no long, you know, as the market has moved away from traditional sedans, four, you know, four-door trunk sedans, um, towards uh, even even those vehicles have a more coupe-like profile. And so now you've taken that the next step with the Sportback. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, you know, everyone's talking about the shift in the market uh, away from traditional sedans. I mean, it's still a big part of the market. However, I mean, one of the reasons people are shifting towards sport utilities and crossover vehicles is the utility, the level of utility. So on the Sportback, um, you know, it has all the attributes that people like about a sedan, but you have that additional utility of the, the lift gate going up and the seat that folds down to give you all that storage in the back. And of course, um, with the Tour X, you know, you're able to share a lot of the vehicle from the B, B pillar forward, and then you add the utility of a, a uh, wagon profile. So you get most of the utility of an SUV and with the sleek profile of a sedan. So both of these entries are addressing the utility side of the equation that most sedans don't uh, don't address. So it's a little bit of a space where other people aren't playing. Yeah, and, you know, as, as 
you know, traditionally American car buyers in particular have been more averse to hatchbacks, liftbacks, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. But I think as the as the, the sedan has morphed into this you know, more fastback profile over the last dozen years or so, uh, mm-hmm. even including you know the the lacrosse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think would would I be right in saying that you know customers maybe are now ready for something that still has that same kind of look, mm-hmm. you know, and doesn't look obviously like mm-hmm. a hatchback. Well, I don't think there. I don't people will always say there's a stigma to a hatchback, but the hatchback back in the day was a regular car that you had a box profile aft of the B-pillar. You know, it was a it looked like you chopped the back of a conventional car off. These cars are designed um, from the beginning to have this lift gate. And we talk about hatches and say, well, is the, is the public ready for it? You look at Audi A7, uh, Aston Rapide, Tesla Model S. These cars are all hatches, air quote, mm-hmm. uh, but they're very fashionable statements on the road. So I don't really think there's a stig- the stigma that a lot of folks uh, claim there to be. And again, when, when you talk about this expressive coupe-like profile, combined with all the, uh, much of the uh, utility of an SUV, you know, it's a winning combination, or has the potential to be a winning combination. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I would guess, you know, now with the sale of Opel to PSA, this will probably be one of the last Buicks that we see co-developed with Opel. Well, for us, we're approaching it. It's business as usual. You know, the, the products that were planned to be developed jointly are continuing on their merry way. Now, obviously, we don't comment on things other sure. than what you see here. But frankly, uh, we, we can decide to do whatever we want with whoever we want in the future. So don't, don't read into it any more than you see. I mean, the products that we've jointly developed are still planned and uh, take a wait and see approach on the rest. Yeah, kind of, kind of where I was going with that was, uh, you know, kind of, you know, if you look at the, the Regal, you know, compared to, say, the LaCrosse, mm-hmm. and more importantly, compared to your recent concepts, mm-hmm. the Avista and the Avenir, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's got a little bit, you know, it's got, it's obvious, it's got some obvious Buick styling cues mm-hmm. to it, but it's also a little bit different, a little more of what Opel's been doing. Are we likely to see in future Buicks that, you know, the next generation of Buicks uh, more of the kind of the voluptuous look that we see in these concepts? I guess it depends on, on what product we're talking about and where in the market that product wants to play. I mean, obviously with a coupe like this, you know, sculpture um, amplified is what a customer would be wanting here. But, you know, with these cars here, it's more about the efficiency of the footprint. It's, you know, uh, wheelbase, it's rear seat comfort, it's cargo capacity. So these are going to be a bit more pragmatic in how we surface them and how we develop the proportions. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't say that us parting ways with Opal is necessarily going to change our design language or our vocabulary in this segment. Um, you know, these vehicles look the way they do for a reason. It, it, because they were developed jointly as a Buick and an Opal. It wasn't simply take this open and put your grill on it. That's not that's not really right. the way it works. A lot of people have the misconception that that's the way it is. They're developed jointly. Um, and because of that, it has to be as much of Buick as it is as is an Opal. So um, I don't know that that's uh, really how it, would, how it would work. Okay. Any final thoughts you want to share about Buick design and, and where you see yeah, it going I, in the next I, I, five, I think 10 years? This is the best time uh, to be in the market for a Buick or to be working for a Buick because we're in the middle of uh, a renaissance. I mean, the design language is very, like you had mentioned on the Avista, this voluptuous, 
the surfaces are just beautiful on Buicks these days. And you see it across the board in all these vehicles. We have these wonderful light signatures and all the wonderful, beautiful details as you walk in close and look at the lamps and so forth. I'm really, really proud to be associated with this brand. You know, I was saying to someone else earlier, these are cars that are going to look good for a long time. And that's what I like about Buick, is the aesthetic is not temporary. Uh, Buick aesthetic is not fashion of the day. It's, it's an aesthetic that works. It's an aesthetic that has uh, rooted in history and um, forward-looking at the same time. It's proportion, it's surface language, and detailing. You look at all the most beautiful cars of all time, they have those three elements, and that's what we focus on at Buick. All right. Thank you very much, Bob. Okay, so now we're going to talk about the Regal Tour X. Yes, because whatever you do in the U.S. market, don't call it a station wagon. Right, so what, what is the preferred term? Uh, I mean, it, is it, it, the, 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 the terminology that Mark Royce used when they unveiled this thing a few days ago was crossover. They're call, they're, GM is calling this a crossover. Um, and, you know, given that, you know, it's it's followed the trend of you know, the Subaru Outback and the uh, uh, Audi All Roads and, and other such vehicles, you know, so they've jacked it up a couple inches and put uh, black, you know, black plastic uh, wheel arch extensions on it. So it looks sort of semi kind of SUV like, uh, but, you know, it's a wagon. It's a slightly yeah. taller wagon. Yeah, honestly, it looks I don't care what you call it. It's it's a really sharp looking car. Uh, it, it looks decidedly European, mm-hmm. um, which I mean, makes, which makes sense. sense. Yeah. Uh, given that it's it's an Opal. <laughs> yeah, um, it, it is. It is the new Opal insignia. Um, but it, it's a, it's a nice looking car and it's it's pretty much in that sweet spot for size. I'm just I'm still not convinced that. Well, I mean, there is a wagon market, you know, people buy the Outbacks. I think it's a good play to call it a crossover. Um, you know, it reminds me a lot of the the Volvo XC70. Mm-hmm. Um, part of that is just the cladding and the, the handsome Europeanness. Um, so I, I don't know. Do you think that this is going to actually be a success or do they, do they care all that much? You know, it, it depends on, on how you define success, you know, for the last the last couple of years, um, you know, Regal sold about you know, a little less than 20,000 units a year for the last two years. Um, you know, it never really and, you know, and it's the previous generation one never really got much over about 40, maybe 45,000 at its peak. Uh, so, you know, I mean, it wasn't a huge seller to begin with, which, you know, it, it's interesting. Um, Duncan Aldred, who's the. Uh, um, global or the marketing director for uh, basically he's head of Buick brand in North America. Uh, he, he talked about, you know, the Regal being a white space vehicle and, you know, I mean, white space vehicle is traditionally, you know, it's a term that's used to describe a, a vehicle in a new segment, you know, that doesn't exist. Um, and certainly there's nothing about either one of these Regal variants that from a, an overall industry perspective is white space. I mean, there's plenty of other brands, doing the same same kind of body styles uh but certainly for gm this is a white space vehicle gm does not have anything else in this segment so you know i think it fits in really well you know we're starting to see a a trend from gm you know know, they've got these four brands uh chevrolet buick cadillac and gmc and they're they're starting to try to distinguish them more so you don't have the same kind of vehicle from two brands. Oh, you know, that's a really good point. And that's, that's true. Um, Yeah. We we saw it starting happen the last year when they launched the Acadia, 
um, and now, you know, and then now the Traverse, they're both off the same Lambda platform. The previous generation, you know, you had the Acadia, the Traverse and the uh, Buick Enclave. They were all exactly the same size, same wheelbase, you know, same size. Same everything. Yeah. Different, for, you know, different, different designs, different styling. Yeah. But, you know, other than that, they were identical. And this time, you know, they they took the they made the um, Acadia a foot shorter than the Traverse. So the Traverse stayed about the same size as the previous one. But the Acadia got smaller, more closer to a midsize. Um, you know, and we're not sure yet. We'll find out in New York what they're going to do with the Enclave. Um, but, you know, they're, they're starting to get more differentiation. So certainly from a GM perspective, the Regal is a white space vehicle. You know, they don't have a wagon like this anywhere else in the, the North American GM lineup. Uh, and, you know, given that it, it wasn't selling a whole lot to begin with, they've got nowhere to go but up. Yeah, it's not much of a risk, I suppose. And, and you yeah. know, honestly, this is the the so for, there's been decades of complaints about. I mean, you just described badge engineering uh, with the the Lambda vehicles. Um, you know, it was basically they were all the same thing. Just sort of you know pick how nice you want them and what you want it to look like, uh, and you can you can climb the ladder from the Traverse, which was the cheapest, to you know the the Acadia and and the the um, Enclave, which are were sort of two different two different flavors of, of luxury, I guess. Um, the, yeah. I mean, you know, now in this segment, you've got, you've got the Malibu from Chevrolet as a four door sedan. Right. You know, and now, and then you've got the Regal it's on the same architecture, but you know, it's a five door hatch or a wagon or crossover or whatever you want to call it. You know, so it's, it's something different. So to get real geeky, um, are the Malibu and Regal coming from different plants or have they set it up where they could produce this, the, the two cars in the same, same facility? Um, no, the, the Regal will be sourced uh, from GM's, from the, the Opal plant in Rüsselsheim. Um, you know, and this, this was actually planned uh, long before the sale of Opal and Vauxhall to PSA. Uh, they decided some time ago that the second generation Regal um, or, or this new generation Regal would not be built here in North America. The, the previous one, and they have been building it in uh, their Oshawa, Ontario plant for the last several years. And because the sales are so low, um, they haven't said what yet, what they're going to do with Oshawa, but they're not going to build Regal there anymore. It's going, it's going, it's because it's so um, it shares so much with the insignia. I mean, it's all the same sheet metal as the insignia. Um, it's easier for them to just build it there and then ship them over. Yeah, well, I guess that yeah makes makes sense. And again, it's it's kind of <laughs> they don't have really anything to lose. Um, this is the kind of thing that I would love to see Ford actually do with with Lincoln. And I guess they're trying a little bit, um, but really, like Lincoln, for years it was Lincoln doesn't have anything distinctive. And now since Mercury's gone, Lincoln has been kind of turned into Mercury to a degree. Yeah. You know, um, I, I mean. You know, Lincoln, you know, they've got distinct styling, but uh, other than that, you know, they are aside from the, the Continental, you know, the um, the MKZ, uh, the MKC and the MKX all share, you know, the same dimensions, you know, same the same wheelbase and everything with their Ford equivalents and mostly the same power plants. They're starting to distinguish the, the power plants a little bit and give Lincoln some unique variations of the power plants. They've certainly got unique styling. Hopefully they'll start to differentiate them more like that. You know, they've got Lincoln gets the continental and Ford is not going to have anything equivalent to the continental. It looks like, it looks like there won't be a new Taurus for the North American market. 
Yeah, well, I mean, we'll we'll see what happens, but it's it's uh, it, it, I don't know that Ford actually has anything that they could give Lincoln. It's just kind of the same that they don't already offer. Maybe maybe they do. Yeah, we'll we'll see. But we should we should play the interview with uh, Martin Hayes before we move yeah. on. <laughs> just to pull us back to Buick, and then we'll we'll move on uh, and talk about the the Hyundai Ionic and the uh, the the Kia Niro um, before we wrap up. So anyway, here's the interview with Martin Hayes. So, Martin Hayes, chief engineer on the the Regal. Are you are you are uh, are you just engineer chief engineer on the on the Regal or also on the Insignia program as well? Not on the Insignia, but I do have a Chevrolet Malibu. Oh, okay. So, um, first of all, uh, what's what's un- what are some of the unique elements of this car uh, relative to the Malibu okay. um, and and other cars that are already on this existing architecture? Okay. So, as compared to the Malibu, it's. Uh, all the sheet metal is different. We share some of the common powertrain components and what we call you know, our architecture or uh, um, components from the suspension. Um, but other than that, as you can see from a sheet metal perspective, everything that's not underneath the car is totally different. The interior is totally different. Um, we do share even we do share more with the insignia. It's co-developed. We mentioned that it's co-developed with Opel as an insignia. It's built in Rüsselsheim. Um, the difference is there. Um, it's it is a Buick for North America customers. It's not a Opel for G, um, for European customers. Um, so what do we have to what we're allowed to I'll say play with? That's what, you know you know what we like to say is what do we what do we get to mess what with? What can you tweak? For yeah, what do we American get to tweak customers? for the for what we want our customers to be? And obviously. As an example, one of the really important things for Buick is quiet tuning, right? We have to pay a little bit more attention to that. So one of the things we've done is gone with the um, the, the tire insulation on our front-wheel drive models. Um, our acoustics are a little bit different. We are able to tune ride and handling for our customer behavior on our roads with our tires. Mm-hmm. So it's really important that we spend that extra time doing that development. And, and that's makes, all unique makes, from the Insignia. It totally is unique, and it makes all the difference in the world. It really does. When you go over and you drive an Opel on the Autobahn, is a much different experience when you drive a car here on Michigan roads after the winter, right? We have to play these things a little bit differently. Um, so that's one of the aspects as well. Then we have some powertrain differences. They have different powertrain lineup than we do. We do share a little bit. Um, we have the two liter turbo uh, nine speed on the front wheel drive. It's fantastic. We tune that, we develop that, we calibrate it for what, how our customers drive here. So these are the tuning elements that we have. Um, on top of that too, um, there's some style differences, um, colors, materials on the interior that we're allowed, that, that, that we do differently for our customers here as well. Different tastes. So um, the the insulated tires, Yeah. That, is that the first time the GM has used that it, technology? It is, it is. This is the first introduction of it um, um, that we've chosen. We're always, Buick quiet tunings price of entry for our Buick customers. You know, our brand, it's a big part of our brand, our brand identity. But we have to do that efficiently as possible. So this is one of the ways, uh, partnering with uh, Continental, that we could do that. The tire is a major source of noise as you're driving over the road, as we all know. And so one of the efficient ways of doing that is is to work with them on tire insulation. So I think you're going to see it more. What, what kind of material is that for the insulation? It's like an open cell foam. Okay. And is it just bonded there. to the interior? Bond, of the, exactly. And it passes all of our, you know, tire wear testing and durability testing 
So is it well. basically is it act more like uh, like a mass damper or no? Or, it's it's or sound it's absorbing. Sound, okay. It's not a mass damper. Okay. I mean, obviously, going to add a little bit of weight to the tire, but that's not its intention at all. Okay. It changes the cavity mode and absorbs sound. Okay. Um, and do uh, you think you're going to use this technology in, in, on other vehicles? It's currently not announced or planned, but I okay. could see definitely that happening. Okay. It provides a real big benefit to the car. And another one of the features that's unique to the Regal, at least yes. for, for GM here in North America, um, is the active safety hood. Ab Talk absolutely, a bit about that. yeah. So um, what this is, is this an added safety element that we've, we've added to this vehicle? Um, from a pedestrian perspective, per pedestrian protection perspective. And what you have on the front is um, a long uh, pressure sensor along the front of the vehicle. And in the unlikely event of hitting a pedestrian, it can sense that that has occurred, activate a small pyrotechnic device in the hinge. The hinge immediately pushes the hood up about four inches as the pedestrian is accelerating onto the hood and provides um, a safer, um, a bit more of a cushion, um, and the hood is closer to that pedestrian and it lowers all the potential injuries of that, whether it's head, shoulder, thoracic, all of those things, all of those injury criteria are improved in this kind of situation. So after it after it actuates and rises back up, does it then start to descend slowly like an um, airbag after, would start to deflate? After a few seconds, um, the, the system depressurizes. Okay. Um, obviously an event has occurred, right? You're not just gonna be driving off anywhere sure. or give up. So you're gonna see this, you're gonna see if this has happened. Um, you hope you're not going to be driving out. <laughs> the, the, the hood can be pushed back into position and you can safely go on to where you need to, which, and, and if you read, um, there's clear documentation in the owner's manual and some getting to know you information for the, for the customers. So they know they, need, they do need to go to a dealer and have it serviced. So is that a, a similar type of pyrotechnic actuator to what's used in airbags? It's, it is similar to that, but it's more similar to the ones that are like a pretensioner for a seatbelt okay. that pretensions your seatbelt. It's a lot smaller. Um, every supplier has their own unique blend of how that all works, so it's all proprietary, uh, but it's more similar to what a pretensioner does. And uh, what about other technologies that are, that are new and, and unique in the, in the Regal compared to either the Insignia or to other North American uh, models that you have? Um, well, we have unique to this vehicle. Yeah, You're what's, what's for, new? I mean, what's, I'm looking for what's new. Okay, so what's new? I mean, uh, we, we, we highlighted a couple of the key mm -hmm. ones here that are really new. Um, what I'd like to think really is new is what we're offering the customer um, from a, for one, an SUV alternative perspective um, with the Tour X, mm -hmm. and then also a great mid-size car to drive, some unexpected versatility with the Sportback. I think that's the uniqueness in what we're trying to sell here from the Buick perspective and from the Regal perspective. Yeah, Duncan Aldred talked earlier about um, you know, white space opportunities you know, for, for a brand like Buick um, to have the opportunity, you know, now that you've got the scale with your the global sales growth that the brand has had both here in the U.S. and in China, uh, you've got the scale to try some things that you might not have been able to do previously. And, you know, as traditional sedan sales have been in decline in recent years, uh, it's, it's, it's an interesting time to go with a different yep. format, a different body style. How, that how do we get those before. people back into it? Yeah. If, if they've decided that they 
they like the versatility of a utility, how do we get them back into the sedan market? I'll tell you what, when they drive it, they're going to remember how great it is to drive a car. Right. Okay, and get back into a sedan and how easy it is and how easy it is to park. But then you get on the road and it's that spirited performance, especially with the all-wheel drive system. They're going to fall in love with it again. But then you have some of these unique features like a Sportback, which offers a little more versatility in cargo. And then obviously the Tour X, which gives you all kinds of added versatility with and in the accessories that are, you know, the roof rack accessories that will be available and the different cargo uh, functionality that's that's available. Okay. And what about um, interior features for, for customers? Anything new yeah. that you're offering uh, in terms of connectivity or other, <laughs> other capabilities? We, we have our suite of connectivity features that we're offering in the Buicks, you know, with the, the 4G um, LTE Wi-Fi and OnStar, all the, car, all the latest yeah. CarPlay and Android uh, uh, features. We have wireless charging. Um, the uniqueness in the interior, in my mind, comes with the feeling. It's uh, slightly driver-centric, but it's not disregarding the passenger. But if you sit in there, you'll start to notice everything kind of shifted towards the driver. So it, it feels more like a driver's car. And then it also um, accentuates spaciousness. Everything feels a little wider than maybe it really is. Yeah. And then the subtleties and choice of materials and the stitching and the colors and the way those all accent each other makes it a little bit unique in this space. It's 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 understated luxury that uh, I think our customers are really going to value. Okay, great. All right, so you went to a uh, Hyundai Ionic event actually today, and uh, last night I actually went and checked out the the Kia Nero uh, out here in Boston. So we kind of. We saw two different versions of the same thing, but um, what what was your take on the Ionic? What did you do? Did you drive it? Did you uh, just sort of crawl all over it, get the presentation, eat the lunch, do the thing? Uh, well, we, we did the crawl all over it and uh, get the presentation, eat the lunch uh, back in November, uh, just before the LA Auto Show when they revealed it there. So yeah. uh, this time we actually had a chance to take it out on the road and drive it. Um, and... Uh, we uh, the first uh, half of the day we drove the Ionic Electric, which is a battery electric version. And just to back up a little bit, the the Ionic uh, and the the Kia Niro uh, share a platform. It's uh, Hyundai Motor Group's first uh, dedicated electrified vehicle platform. And I say electrified because you know they're it's the first one to offer both uh, or three different variants, uh, powertrain variants: a hybrid electric with no plug. Uh, a plug-in hybrid and a full battery electric version. Uh, and the battery, the battery electric version of the Ionic is the first one to go on sale. It's, it's available now in California and they'll be rolling it out to other States over the coming months. Um, and then the, um, the hybrid is launching, uh, later this month, later in April. Uh, and then the plug-in hybrid will arrive in the fourth quarter of this year. Yeah, and it, it it's not that they don't have experience with uh, hybrids and even you know plugins. They've been doing the Optima and the Sonata for for several years now. Right. Uh, so they they've just they've decided to basically make make a direct Prius competitor. And the, the, certainly the uh, the Ionic is uh, very clearly aimed at uh, that segment of the market um but it looks it looks a lot more normal i think than especially now the prius got ugly so yeah <laughs> yeah they, um, you know i mean you, you look at uh, you know aerodynamics was obviously a, a primary factor in its design you know which is why it has the the basic side profile it does which you know looks very prius like 
but um, you know, aside from that, you know, the, the styling, you know, they've definitely done a, a much better job, I think overall on the design uh, both the exterior and the interior of this thing. Um, and, you know, because it's been optimized for electrified platforms, they've made it lighter. Uh, they've, they've worked in the, you know, to package the batteries and things like that in it. Um, and it's actually really good to drive. Um, you know, it's, I mean, you know, the current generation, the latest generation Prius got, you know, finally got a lot better to drive, but this one is, you know, a couple of steps beyond, um, you know, it was the, the roads, you know, we drove it on, um, you know, there were some, some bumpy roads, some, some really nice curvy roads, uh, at least, you know, as much as we have around, uh, Southeast Michigan. Um, and you know, this is a, this is a really fun car to drive. It's, uh, it's fairly peppy, especially the electric version. Um, and the, um, uh, the, the chassis is really well sorted out, uh, really good ride quality. It does a good job of absorbing the bumps, but, you know, and then maintaining body control, excellent body control. Uh, and, you know, it feels really nimble around the corners. Um, and it's just, it's, it's just really enjoyable. Well, and that's, that's really like, I don't think we can emphasize how impressive that is for, uh, Hyundai and Kia, the, just the, the way you talked about how well-tuned the suspension is because it wasn't too long ago that you know the cars would add up on paper but then you drive them and one of the sort of last stumbling blocks for them was to figure out how to properly tune a suspension so that was either you know uh not too harsh or not too too soft and squishy um and they've they've really figured that out in the last uh couple of years yeah no Um, these these ionics uh have really good balance um and, you know, the, the powertrains are really nice, especially the all electric one. Uh, the, one of the things they have on the electric uh, is they've got paddles on the steering wheel like you would normally find with, you know, a gas car uh, with an automatic, you know, what, what would be considered shift paddles. In this case, uh, they're regen paddles. Uh, so the one on the uh, left hand side of the steering wheel allows you to crank in more regenerative braking so that when you lift off the accelerator, uh, the car slows down more without having to hit the brakes and it'll put more energy back into the battery. So you can get into one foot driving uh, and then the one on the right, you know, reduces the the regen um, and gets you back to a more normal mode, uh, you know, more more uh, comparable to normal engine braking. Uh, you know, I I've, I've found that I actually really like driving EVs with heavy regen and doing yeah, the, do doing the one foot, one pedal, uh, control. Uh, however, I found that compared to the Chevy bolt, I drove a couple of months ago. Um, this one, it, it doesn't give you quite as much max regen as the bolt does. And also, uh, it's, um, it's not quite as easy to modulate. So the, they need to do a little bit more work on the, the control between the pedal as you move the pedal around. So it's a little, little bit more granular than the, uh, than the bolt was. The bolt was a little bit smoother, but aside from that, you know, it was really good. Um, and uh, I think I'm looking forward to getting one of these to spend uh, a, a longer period of time driving it around and get a better handle on, you know, what the real range is. That's this is the the one other thing about this car um, besides the uh, you know all that is the range uh, is only 124 miles. Um, Hyundai's been emphasizing the efficiency of the car, so it's it's actually much more it's actually quite a bit more efficient than any other EV on the market. Um, and they were you know they were showing a chart that showed uh, 
it gets about uh, 133 miles per gallon equivalent uh, when driving around uh, versus the Bolt is about 124, I think, 124, 125. And the Tesla Model S 75D is about 61. Is that because of their, uh, or at least partially due to their their battery? Because Honda uses a um, what a, a lipo battery, a lithium ion polymer, right? That, that yeah, it's, it's they're they're more pouch. dense. Yeah, well, it, I mean, it, the the efficiency doesn't really have to do with the battery itself. I mean, that's more the rest of the car. You know, things like reducing friction, reducing uh, drag. Uh, getting things lighter, um, better power electronics. So you have fewer losses in the conversion between DC and AC. Uh, th- those are the things that'll get you efficiency in an EV. And, you know, they, uh, they did a really good job on that. So it is very efficient and they get, they get a lot out of the battery that they have. Um, it's just, it's just not as much battery as what you'll get in a bolt. Yeah, but the the flip side too is that it's it's very cleverly packaged too. So you you pay less penalty. I mean, I'm not. I haven't really spent any time with the Bolt, so maybe there's not as much of a penalty there either. But uh, with the battery packaged beneath the rear seat, um, like it is in in both of these cars. Uh, yeah, the, it's, the Bolt it's, it's entirely under the floor, um, yeah. and so you have a completely flat floor. And in this one, um, it's partially under the floor and partially under the rear seat uh, and the, the rear cargo area. But even even with that, uh, you know, you still get um, uh, almost 123 combined cubic feet of total interior volume, uh, which actually classifies this you know, under That's EPA. A large car. That's a large car. 120 yeah. feet, 120 cubic feet is the threshold for a large car. Uh, and so this is actually uh almost three cubic feet larger than a model s which on the outside is a substantially larger car i was gonna say that's crazy because this is the size of a prius outside yeah it's exactly the same size as a prius it's like within within an inch in all dimensions except for width it's actually a little bit wider than a prius um but you know you get 26 and a half cubic feet of trunk volume 96 cubic feet of passenger volume i mean this thing is very roomy um roomier roomier than than a model s uh, obviously it doesn't have the range, but, um, you know, it, it does, it, it does really well. Um, it's, it's very impressive. Uh, and you know, they are, they, they have said that they're going to to do a, a version with a larger battery next year, a 200 mile range. Uh, currently you get 124 miles of range, which, you know, it's going to be plenty for most people. Uh, but you know, for example, if you live in Massachusetts or, or Michigan or someplace else where they get cold winters, uh, depending on how far you have to drive on a regular basis, it could get marginal. But, um, you know, it's it's a good car. The Oh, the, the other thing about it, the um, uh, Ionic Electric starts at just uh, $30,000 before yeah, tax incentives. Yeah. And that's so, what I was actually looking at with the, um, the uh, Nero, too. The Nero starts at like twenty. Three twenty-two something. Uh, I think that's for the hybrid, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm sorry. Uh, it, yes, it is for the hybrid. But still, like both of those, like they've they've dropped the price point of both a hybrid and a, an EV to a, a pretty impressive uh, level. Yeah, absolutely. And you know the thing about the uh, the Ionic, uh, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's designed in a lot of ways. It's designed to appeal directly to Prius buyers. Uh, you know, and give them the option of either, uh, you know, a conventional hybrid, plug-in hybrid, 
um, or a full battery electric. So, you know, if you want something like a Prius that is a, a BEV, um, you know, you have that option from Hyundai uh, for, you know, like $22,000 after tax incentives. Uh, and, and actually, if you live in California, it could be as low as about 18 grand. It's the same thing as like uh, the Nissan Leaf, though, in in the sense that it's 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 a very good mousetrap. Um, the one thing it's missing is that sort of Prius shine, you know, just the halo effect of the name. It kind of like the same as, as every Tesla. Um, uh-huh. So they've they've built a, a really really competitive car. Uh, it's also how, missing one other thing too, though. Oh, what's that? Well, what's the segment that Americans seem to be rushing to in a, in a headlong race? <laughs> it's the crossover, you mean? Yeah. I mean, they've got the Soul EV, which I guess is kind of a crossover. Well, that's a Kia, though. Yeah. I, it's, I think of Kia and, and Hyundai as the same. So it's like, oh, forget about Hyundai. You buy a Kia, you too. Like, and I, I, I probably just do that because I'm, I'm who I am. Yeah. But, but there, there is another option now, too. Which you're going to talk about. Well, yes, that that is the, the Nero, um, which is basically all the things that you said about the the Ionic, where I was in real time comparing it to <laughs> the Nero, because that's the one that I have experience with. Um, my biggest impression of this was how normal it is. It's just, a, you know, they, they they brought up for us to gawk at the highest trim level uh, Nero. But it, like, when you look at it, it just. It just looks like a normal car, like a normal hatchback. Um, it has a 43 horsepower uh, electric motor stuck between the the engine and the transmission. I think it's a dual clutch transmission uh-huh. um, in the, the Nero uh, and uh, I think a 1.6 liter turbo. Uh, no, um, it's not. It's, just, it's Atkinson. Right? Yeah, it's just it's normally aspirated. Um, but it'll get up to like 50 miles per gallon, uh, which is good because you know to get that in the past you'd need a car like a civic hx which was just a penalty box um it's it's very comfortable materials are good it's stylish it's you know you don't again you don't pay any penalty with the the cargo space and stuff like it really feels like the the sort of future of uh the efficient vehicle segment in the sense that it hits all the marks like everything that people want in a car, it, it has the you can call it a crossover if you want. I didn't really think it was a crossover in that. And just like my impression of it was like, oh, yeah, it's it's a you know compact hatch, um, which is essentially what a lot of crossovers are. Anyway, I mean, they're, they're tall. They're, they're compact hatches that ride a little higher. Yeah. Um, and that's that's fine. Uh, you know, I was I was impressed with it. Uh, all of the details of it. You know, it's it's pretty much the same vehicle as the Ionic with a different powertrain. Uh, so Hyundai is really, and, and Kia has really done their homework. The structure has a lot of high strength steel. I didn't get a chance to drive it. So I don't know how it behaves on the road from what it sounds like. It, it drives tight. It, it's well behaved from, from your impressions of, of essentially the same vehicle. I'm not sure how they're going to translate. I, I, I don't think it's going to be all that different though. Um, yeah, I mean, from from early reviews uh, I've read from people who had a chance to go on the the first drive of the of the Nero, um, it's very much like the uh, the Ionic. You know, it's gotten very good reviews. Um, you know, especially for its driving dynamics and and the uh, the powertrain. Yeah, and it, it's it really 
it's hard to predict where the buyers are going to go, but they, they seem like they are, there's the, again, like you were talking about white space, like there's this blank area here, I guess if we wanted to make another metaphor, we'd call it a green field, right? Like there's not too many choices in this, this size, uh, segment for crossovers that are, uh, hybrids and, um, don't really cost you any, anything in terms of actually using it. Um, so there's there's a few like but not they're not as uh, well developed I guess um, they've, they've yeah really, I mean there's the Rav four hybrid from Toyota yeah, that's what I was thinking of but I I don't like the Rav four yeah and and the you know the the Nissan Rogue hybrid you know those are probably the two closest uh, to yeah. what the the Nero offers but what you know what the Nero will offer just like the Ionic is the, the same other powertrain options. So in addition, I mean, Nero and Kia is launching theirs in a different sequence. They're, they're starting with the, the hybrid. Uh, and then uh, I think this summer they're launching the battery electric and then the plug-in hybrid uh, later in the year. Yeah. I mean, that's... May, actually, no, I think they're doing the plug-in hybrid second and then the battery electric comes third. So the, the plug-in's the one that I think is is just like, that's the most intriguing to me because you can you can get, a limited amount of electric only range and you don't have the anxiety of, of, you know, running out of, of juice when you need to, you know, it's cause it's a family vehicle essentially is the way I see it. So you do have to accommodate some of that range anxiety. Um, certainly the hundred something miles of range as a battery electric vehicle, that's, that's pretty good. And that will cover most bases. But if you're going to use this, you know, the way uh, a modern family does, you, you may lean toward the, uh, the plug-in hybrid. I can see that being sort of the, the one that takes the sales crown, but maybe, maybe it's just the straight up hybrid that does. I don't know. I'll, I'll be really curious to see how these, these do though, just because they're not the Prius, you know? Um, and they, they, Toyota has done a really good job of building that brand. And we've seen other hybrids kind of, kind of come and fizzle, you know? And, and, uh, I mean, the insight comes to mind where, yeah, well, I mean, you know, to be to be honest, though, the Insight was not a great car in a lot of ways. The last Insight was bad. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was a hateful little thing. I did not like it. It had it had a flinty ride. You know, it, I mean, it it was based on the on the Fit platform, but it had none of the 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 positive attributes of the flit of the Fit. <laughs> that's yes, that's accurate. It felt so cheap too. Yeah, it's just yeah. Um, and these, these cars don't, you know, they don't, they don't feel like anything other than cars, which is, it, that's a, that's a good thing to be doing. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're almost on the cusp of really like electric vehicles being quite viable. Um, it, it I guess it depends on how, how we can easily integrate now that the, the charging infrastructure and stuff like that. My biggest problem with an electric car is I don't have a garage. So when I get one, I have to string out the 110 <laughs> volt, uh, uh, extension cord to, to charge them and they charge slow and stuff. But all the, like when people ask me about EVs too, you know, I had somebody actually ask me at work about the Nero. Um, and I was, you know, explaining like how great some of the features are for, electric cars and, and, and the hybrids now where you can precondition the interior without idling the engine and stuff like all of those that they're actually great to use and, and straight EVs, like you said, they're, they're really good to drive. And I find that 
it, given the choice between an EV or a, a hybrid of the same car, I want the EV because yeah, I mean, it's just better. Yeah. You know, modern EVs are not golf carts. You know, I mean, Tesla was, you know, first one out there to really demonstrate what was possible with a modern electric vehicle. And, you know, fortunately, you know, everybody else that's followed has, as you know, they haven't gone to the same extremes for the most part in terms of, you know, the ridiculous acceleration or, or should I say ludicrous acceleration. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they're, you know, these modern EVs are as good as, or better than, you know, any of their gasoline equivalents with that proviso that they do have more limited range and, you know, it'll take more, more time to um, put energy back into them than, than it would with uh, a gas or diesel car or, or even a, a hydrogen fuel cell, if you have one of those. So, uh, you know, Hyundai um, and I, I believe uh, Kia is going to be doing the same thing. You know, they do include uh, DC fast charging support as standard in the car. Uh, you know, it can charge it up to 100 kilowatts, which is basically the same uh, rate as a Tesla supercharger. Uh, you know, so you can pop, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, 80 percent charge in about 20 minutes in that thing, uh, just because it's a smaller battery. And, you know, it, it'll it'll if you can, depending on where you're going, you know, there's an increasing number of DC fast charging stations, especially along the east and west coasts. And, you know, they're they're gradually starting to get built out, uh, you know, through the middle of the country as well for for transcontinental trips, you know, because it's, you know, a more limited range than a Bolt or, or a Tesla. It's, uh, you know, you're going to have to do those stops more often. But, you know, it is possible. Yeah. I, hmm. The, my, does the battery get beat up by charging it with the DC fast charger? Is it, does it affect battery life? That's my only concern with that it, is, is yeah, charging it, it, it that aggressively. It, it, it can have a negative impact on battery life. Um, and, um, you know, the degree to which you do it, you know, I think depends on how often, you know, I think if you, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't use DC fast charging as your primary method of charging. Uh, you know, you should, you should probably stick to 220 or, or 110 volt charging um, unless you're doing a long trip and you really need to get juice into it fast um, because it, it will degrade your battery. And that, you know, one other factor about the, uh, about the Ionic uh, and the Nero is they do have an air cooled battery. Um, ooh, they, ooh. they have not gone with liquid cooling for some reason. Um, so, you know, I mean, it, it helps keep the, the weight down and, you know, and the cost down a little bit. Um, but uh, it, you know, in extreme conditions, that could be a problem. Like in Death Valley. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm you know, sure they've tested it. Certainly, um, you know, I mean, you know, the Nissan Leaf has an air cooled battery. Um, yeah. And early on, they did have some issues um, with cars in Arizona that, you know, were having premature degradation because of the heat. Uh, and they, they did resolve that problem. They, they, you know, they made some changes and uh, improved the, the cooling um, and, you know, did some other things and it, it got better. Uh, so uh, as far as I know, you know, newer ones don't have those problems anymore, but you know, it's still something to be aware of. Yeah. With, I and that's probably a reason why I, you probably want to minimize your fast charging. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's, that's, it's almost like when you put your, your normal, you know, 12 volt battery, if you've got one of those, those chargers that the shop has, right. If you, if you switch it to like super fast charge mode, it, it just 
pumping a lot of current into the battery and you can you can boil it a, mm-hmm. a lead acid you i mean the the lithium polymer is different but still it's it's a lot of current to be sticking into the battery it generates a lot of heat and stuff so it was just sort of the question that popped into mind anyway um i really can't wait to actually drive it now that i'm i'm very excited about it so uh we'll we'll see when it actually winds up in my driveway um i'm i'm a little bit envious you got to drive the ionic and uh get some impressions of it uh, and i'm assuming you'll have it for a week as well eventually uh, at some point yeah probably sometime this summer yeah probably sometime before i get it because <laughs> that's how that works um all right well we should uh we should wrap up we have a question as well do we um yeah we we got a question on uh linkedin <laughs> oh excellent <laughs> really oh that's right yeah i forgot i saw that yeah. <laughs> um but uh and i'm sorry i didn't copy the name but the the question is uh i'm curious if at some point you could go into the v2v ix and dsrc market a bit what companies and products are leading who the players are etc those capabilities always seem to get passed over for the sake of lidar or camera tech drama um so i mean just just briefly i guess we should touch on it because we could certainly do um, uh, a complete uh, episode on that sure so uh in short what v2v is vehicle to vehicle communications uh and that can also be extended to v2x uh, which is vehicle to external so that can be vehicle to infrastructure pedestrians cyclists what you know whatever um they they're all using the same technology um the for over the last decade, uh, the industry has developed um, what's known as DSRC, dedicated short range communications, and it uses a variation of Wi-Fi technology. So it's it, the, the Wi-Fi you have in your house is probably uh, 802.11 or 802.11n or AC, 802.11ac. Um, the, for DSRC, they use 802.11p. Um, and what it what is designed to do is send short messages in real time uh, between vehicles, between vehicles and pedestrians and between vehicles and infrastructure about what's going on. Uh, and then initially, at least for initial applications, they're primarily using it for um, providing basic safety messages and alerts to drivers. Uh, so, for example, if you're driving down the road uh, you know, and a car you know, a couple hundred yards in front of you hits a patch of ice and activates its stability control or its ABS uh, and it's equipped with V2V. It will send out a a short message and they do this up to 10 times a second. Um, It'll broadcast out a short message and any other cars in the air within range that have V2V um, will get that message and it'll pop up an alert slippery road ahead. Um, You know, so that's, you know, that's one example. Or if, if a driver, you know, slams on the brakes, you know, panic braking situation, it'll it'll provide alerts to that. Um, you can also do things like, you know, two cars approaching a blind intersection, uh, you know, can alert each other. Uh, the the first cars on the market uh, here in the U.S. that have V2V are the 2017 Cadillac CTS that just got updated and GM just started shipping those to dealers about a month ago. Um, and they'll probably be, have a couple more models with that by the end of the year. Um, there, uh, prior to the um, election, there was uh, a, a regulation uh, going through the process that would mandate V2V communications on all new cars starting in 2020. Um, the fate of that regulation is now up in the air. Uh, but 
a bunch of manufacturers are still planning to do it anyway. Um, and particularly for autonomous vehicles, it's going to be important um, because, you know, when we drive as humans, you know, we often give uh, nonverbal, we often have nonverbal communications that, you know, we um, exchange uh, amongst each other. You know, we, we use hand signals to give various <laughs> types of messages. Um, you know, I mean, when you come to a four-way intersection, you know, you, you wave to somebody and say, you know, or somebody's trying to get out of a uh, parking lot, you know, in traffic, you know, you wave to him, you know, say, go ahead, you know, go slide in there. Um, you know, and then there's of course other types of uh, nonverbal messages that uh, people exchange. Right. Um, but you know, for, with a, with an autonomous car, if it's relying only on sensors, you know, it can only detect what happens after it happens. Um, you know, so at, one, once it's once it's starting to happen, you know, then the sensors can detect it, a change, you know, in speed or or direction for a vehicle. Um, but if you have V to V between those vehicles, then vehicles can signal intent to each other um, and exchange those kinds of non nonverbal messages before beforehand. And you can and also, you know, sensors can only see what they can see. They can see what's you know directly in their line of sight. You know, you can't see what might be four or five vehicles down the road with sensors. Um, and so V to V can extend the uh, situational awareness for autonomous vehicles as well as for human driven vehicles. And so, you know, I think we're we're, we're going to see, you know, I've, I've written a couple of uh, research reports now, you know, for for my company, for Nav Navigant, um, doing, you know, forecasting how V to V is going to uh, deploy. Um, you know, I think here in the U.S., you know, we'll we'll see it become pretty commonplace by the early 2020s. Um, and, you know, probably hit about um, about maybe 30 percent of uh the 30 to 35 percent of the the total vehicle fleet in use, you know, by 2025. Uh, and there's also uh, and that's that's for new vehicles. And there's also companies working on aftermarket systems that you can plug into your car and, and get those messages. You can also potentially do it with a cell phone because it's based on Wi-Fi. Um, so there's, there's a lot of ways that, uh, it's going to get into cars, uh, in some areas, some, some regions of the world, they're also, instead of using, uh, the wife, the 802.11p, uh, the DSRC, they're looking at using 5g technology to do this. Um, uh, you know, the problem with cellular, you know, the 802, the, the, the DSRC is designed for really low latency, almost instant. Right. Which is the key with that kind of stuff. If, if, if exactly. Instant, yeah. Yeah, you need it. You need you need to know now what's happening. Um, and, you know, with traditional cellular technology, if it has to go through the cell network, that that adds a lot of latency into the the messaging. So it's it's got to be direct. And so there you know, there's some companies that are working on direct uh, cellular communications between vehicles without going through the network. Um, oh, like to, to direct 5G. So it wouldn't actually be. Yeah, peer to, it's peer to peer instead of going through a, any kind of infrastructure. So it wouldn't actually ping a cell then, right? No, like it would. It would for it would sort of just like another channel, I guess, like a sideband or something. It's, that's yeah, I mean, it, it would just you know send out the the messages in any other car in the area that's got a, a 5G radio, you know, that's set up for V to V, could pick those up and provide the the various the messages to the driver. You know, you could just get a CB with a linear amplifier, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> there would be no latency. You should crank that amp up. It's going to bleed into everything. <laughs> yeah. It's also not legal, but uh, if you get a powerful enough one, you can you can make um, fluorescent tubes light up. 
Um, <laughs> it's it, yeah. All right. Uh, <laughs> so I think the reason why uh, the the V two X and and V two I stuff uh, is not as it gets lost a bit when uh, when the conversation turns to autonomy and and just these the next generation of driver assist systems uh in term instead of like lidar lidar is going to happen sooner uh it's it's like it's already happening with uh you know the next stage of development well v to, i mean v to v is in production now right that's true but the 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 lag is that there's um i'm thinking more of like v to i versus v to v uh because to, to, to make it really effective everything needs to be communicating with everything else and there's that infrastructure inertia that's just you know you've got to get it installed in in municipalities and states and and uh some of that's going to take a while um, the cars right. are going to start talking to each other and that's, that's a plus that's going to start happening once it gets installed on more cars and, and then they can start pinging each other. That, that'll be good. But you know, LIDAR is probably going to be more widely adopted than V to V and in the short term. Um, or I, I could be wrong. <laughs> I, I, I think we'll actually see more V to V, um, in the near term than we will LIDAR. Uh, because the the numbers of vehicles with lidar on are going to still be pretty small until probably well into the you know mid 2020s you know i mean by by the early 2020s you know we're we're probably going to be seeing millions of cars a year shipped with v to v um but the number of cars with lidar in that same time frame is probably still going to be in the low thousands what's the the constraint with lidar cuz it seems to me that like it's just you can buy the sensors now and plop them in the cars and you know, the systems are there for, for LIDAR. I guess it's the have, same. Have you thing. priced out a LIDAR sensor recently, Dan? Uh, maybe that's uh, maybe that's what it is. Uh, no, <laughs> I haven't. I have not. <laughs> yes. Um, um, I knew know, that I mean, supply you, was constrained, you, but. You can you can put you can put V to V in a car for a couple of hundred dollars. Um, LIDAR sensors um, right now. I mean, you know, the first LIDAR sensors that they used for autonomous development, you know, were in the seventy five, eighty thousand dollar range. They're now getting down into the eight to ten thousand dollar range uh per sensor uh, so you know the you know these some of the the latest uh generation like the latest generation ford fusion uh prototypes with uh, autonomous they're using two velodyne lidar sensors at eight thousand dollars a piece so that's 16 grand just for the lidar sensors so this this has been your episode of dan's full of crap apparently i didn't realize the sensors <laughs> were that expensive yeah i mean they're they're you know, there's a bunch of companies working on solid state sensors, um, which, you know, and the, and those are going to be necessary for mass production anyway, uh, because the the mechanical sensors, the electromechanical sensors that they use now for development are not going to be durable enough for long term use, you know, in the vehicle. Because, uh, I mean, you're talking about a sensor that's spinning around at thousands of RPM, you know, and has to deal with the um you know, the vibrations, you know, you get from hitting potholes and frost heaves and that sort of thing. Um, and that's not a good thing. So uh, solid state sensors, uh, you know, they project probably by around 2020, you know, we'll see solid state sensors down to about $250 each. But those, you know, you're going to need, you know, probably at, at least three to four of those per vehicle uh, for an autonomous system. Yeah. Huh. I thought they were getting much cheaper. Like Velodyne just introduced a new one that looks like a little little hockey puck kind of. Yeah, that's the one that's eight thousand dollars. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's, that's the new. That's the new cheap one. The new cheap one. 
And I mean, even, you know, even Waymo, the, the Google spinoff, uh, you know, there, there's, you know, theirs is also in that same range, about 7,500 bucks a piece. Huh? All right. Well, there's your answer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess radios are a little cheaper than lasers. Hmm. For now. <laughs> Uh, cool. I think that is our episode uh, for this week. Um, by the time everybody hears this, you'll be in New York and I'll be um, be doing taxes. Um, <laughs> unless somebody knows a good tax guy in New Hampshire. Or, I mean, Massachusetts or New Hampshire. That's fine. I'll do my taxes, too. Give me landscaping supplies that I can tow and uh, <laughs> somebody to prepare my taxes. So, um, yeah, that's it for this week. Unless there's anything else you want to chip in. Um, no, I'm good. Uh, you know, just send us, you know, send us your feedback at, uh, wheelbearingscast at gmail.com and, uh, or on Facebook and Twitter and, um, you know, tell all your friends to listen to the show and, you know, uh, subscribe in your favorite podcatcher. So you get it every week or, you know, whenever it is, we put it out. All right. Thanks for listening. All right. Bye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.